Liverpool Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. Hello, how are you today? And thank you for joining us on the Paul Leslie Hour. I want to invite you to support the mission of the Paul Leslie Hour. I have been recording, archiving, and distributing interviews with fascinating people for more than 16 years. You can go to patreon.com slash the Paul Leslie Hour, and I think you know that you would be doing a good thing indeed. Now, this interview is one that I'm very excited to present. This is an interview with Buzz Kaysen, who is the verifiable who's who of music. Everybody knows the song Everlasting Love. He co-wrote the song Everlasting Love. He's written songs for everyone from Brenda Lee to the Beatles, and he sang backup vocals for Elvis Presley. He's also credited as one of the people who discovered Jimmy Buffett. I did this interview in conjunction with his album entitled Passion. He is a very passionate man. Now, you might listen to this interview with Buzz Kaysen and think there must be more to the story. Well, you would be correct, and I would also like to take a moment to recommend his book. It's called Living the Rock and Roll Dream, The Adventures of Buzz Kaysen. I sincerely hope this is not the last time I cross paths with Buzz Kaysen. I think there's more that we could get into. Until now, we have our original interview. Well, ladies and gentlemen, the man we're speaking with is Buzz Kaysen. He's a singer, songwriter, recording artist, producer, the author of his autobiography, Living the Rock and Roll Dream. He's been called the father of Nashville rock. He has a new album entitled Passion, and it's so great to have him here. Yeah, great to be on the show, Paul. Thank you, sir. So the name of this album of yours is Passion. How important is passion to Buzz Kaysen? Well, uh, I guess it's everything. You know, it's the uh, the driving force that keeps you going. That you know keeps you your interest, your love, your you know your vitality and everything. If you're not passionate about something, then it's not worth having. <laughs> That's that's kind of what the title song is about on the on the album. It's uh, take away my secrets, take away my song, take away my torn jeans that I've worn so long, take away my shotgun and my Chevy Malibu. You can have those le- you can burn those letters from the girl I once knew. You know, <laughs> never mind what I used to say. Right now, you can take them away. You know, it's a guy re- reevaluating uh, what's important to him. What's what the priorities in his life are. You reciting those lyrics like that, it makes me wonder, are you more moved by the lyric or the melody in the songs? Well, you're moved, uh, I think, in two different ways. It it takes the the lyric to, um, you know, get across the message, but it takes the music to drive it, you know, to, to make it come alive. So it's a it's a just a path, you know. You you uh, you need both to be strong to to have a complete song, you know. Given that the music business has changed so much, has the reason for recording an album changed for you? Well, 
Yes, I, I. Well, you know, as far down the line as I am, we're not trying to get hit singles per se. We're just trying to get the music out there to to maybe touch someone's heart, someone's ears, uh, just uh, to entertain, and with no commercial goal in mind. Uh, however, we're we are in the Americana charts with this album. We're in the fifties and. We may be stuck there. We may not go any higher. We don't know for sure yet. But we we do it just because the the juices are still flowing and the the, the uh, songs are in the room. And so let's get them out of the room into the studio and uh, and get them on the radio somewhere and see what happens. So um, it used to be we were very driven to try to get singles by artists to to record our songs and. Uh, do co-writes and everything with different young writers and try to be competitive. But um, it's it's really just more, well, I guess just for the fun of it, really, to tell you the truth. Yeah. Well, it shows. It sounds like the album, it sounds like you're having fun. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we definitely do. There's nothing like going into the studio with a band and recording. It's, 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 a, it's a great thrill. I want to kind of go back a little bit. You're from Nashville, correct? Yes. Yes, I was born here and grew up here. What kind of effect do you think that that had on you, being from Nashville, Tennessee? Well, it provided a, a lot of opportunities for my creative juices because um, uh, I, I came up, uh, formed a band, uh, the, how we got that title of the Godfather of Rock or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> uh, was I formed a band in 1956, The Casuals, and we were in, still in high school. And um, we got all the gigs because there weren't, weren't any, wasn't any competition at the time. But there was a, a disc jockey here, uh, Noel Ball, who had a TV show, and he had us on it. And that really spread our popularity around with the kids all over town, you know, and got us going. There's always been a been a this energy here in, in town, in Nashville, uh, this musical thing that goes on. And um, I, I don't think being in any other town, I could have, could have, um, let's say, made it or whatever, you know, been successful without having this community around me. I did move to L.A. in 62, well, a couple of years, 62 to 64. I worked for Liberty Records out there, but I was already kind of had a, a career going who wound up moving back and I uh, had, had my more successful years when I moved back to Nashville. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really, it's really in the air here. That's for sure. What was the environment of your house like growing up? Well, we had an upright piano, which I, I took lessons for about three years. I, my, my sister was, was real good at it. She, she, she was an accomplished pianist. But I um, just, you know, sports came into the picture, and then then when music came back in, rock and roll came in, then I, I dropped to the sports and just went went into that full time. But we had, my parents weren't necessarily musical. My mother was a, a good singer. She sang in the choir and sang alto, and I've always said that's how I learned to pick up harmony was sitting with her when she wasn't singing in the choir, I'd be following along with her and I'd hear those harmony notes. And I, I became a, a background singer for many years and singing, singing all the parts, you know. 
from bass all the way up to falsetto soprano. <laughs> but and my dad, he he had played some woodwinds in school, but he wasn't like guitar player or anything around the house. You know, my mother taught me uh, a couple of little songs on a ukulele. That was the first time I picked up a stringed instrument. What were the musicians, the bands, the singers that you liked the most in your youth? Well, I grew up listening to WLAC 50,000-watt, you know, uh, AM station out of Nashville that went all over the country. John R. and Hoss Allen and Gene Nobles and all those guys. And listening to R&B, I had a little crystal radio, which you don't ever hear anything about anymore. And it would pick up three stations. It would pick up WSM, the Grand Ole Opry, and it would pick up WLAC and then WSIX, which played a big band music mainly. So I got a taste of all three of those, but I gravitated towards R&D, Muddy Waters, Lowell Fulson, Jimmy Reed, early, early James Brown, the Famous Flames, uh, the Midnighters, all of those great old classic R&B acts that they were playing on, on WLSC. Bo Diddley, Bo Diddley was a hero of all of us in Nashville. He was kind of the Jimi Hendrix of, of our era, and that's the way... I tell everybody, our band, we thought we were black until we looked in the mirror one day. We, we played <laughs> we played black music more than anything, you know, played covers of all the uh, the hits. You know, that was the music that, that I grew up to. Having read your book, Living the Rock and Roll Dream, The Adventures of Buzz Kaysen, which is your autobiography, you've encountered so many stars. Everyone from Jerry Lee Lewis, Bo Diddley, even Frank Sinatra. Who were you the most in awe of? Well, I would probably have to say the, the, the one that I was closest to, well, as far as working with, I don't know which you mean, just meeting someone or or just being a fan of. I, uh, of course, we came up in the Elvis era, and in 57 we got to meet him, and that was a uh, that was really a special time. We met him at radio station in Memphis, WHBQ. Then later on, jammed with him at his house in, in California. So that was very, very special. And the the main artist that that we cut our teeth with and were able to travel with her during her number one record period was Brenda Lee. And she was just 12 years old when we started out with her. And we were 16. And um, we, the casuals, went on to be with her for over 20 years, the band. I, I was had left the band, but her dynamic performance, her voice on stage, and her professionalism just left a lasting mark with us. Tell us a little more about Brenda Lee. She wrote the foreword to your book. She's an enduring artist. Oh, yes. Yes, she's. She's had a long career and just a powerful voice. I remember when we went up to Rockford, Illinois, to play the first show with her. They, uh, Oscar Davis, who had managed Jerry Lee Lewis for a while, recommended our band to Dub Albritton, who was kind of like the Colonel Parker to Brenda Lee. He he practically raised her once he found her over at the, at the Ozark Jubilee, and he he said, "Come on up and." We'll 
audition you at the show. So I guess we knew we were going to get on the show one way or the other because we, we hadn't had a rehearsal with her until we got up there. And we went on, and, and she was so tiny that we, and they and the footlights were so large. In those days, they had those big, uh, looked like aluminum, stainless, or whatever. They, they were metal footlights. And they came up about three feet, and she wasn't but about four feet tall, you know, at the most. And so we set her up in a chair, and she opened that voice and sang without moving a limb and just brought the house down. We thought, man, this kid is, is something else, you know. And then we went on to start playing shows with her around the South on various rock and roll shows and then broke in her nightclub act at well we rehearsed it in in New York to begin with because they put us with a very difficult choreographer Richard Barstow who who about killed us rehearsing eight hours a day but we um went on and broke the the, the nightclub show in at Blinstrom's at Boston and then went from there straight to Sahara in Las Vegas it was quite a quite a trip and then in 1960 we did a about a 60-day tour with a rock and roll show. It featured her and Fabian and Chubby Checker, Dwayne Eddy and uh, Jimmy Clinton, a bunch of folks like that. And uh, it was one-nighters all over the country. So we had a, we had quite an adventure with Brenda. I'm holding a copy of the book, Living the Rock and Roll Dream. Just a moment ago, we were talking about different people, and you did mention Elvis Presley. And I can't help but wonder when I look at this picture. That's Elvis Presley, man. <laughs> Were you at all intimidated by him? No, I wouldn't say intimidated. A while ago, you mentioned being awed. It was kind of, kind of awestruck because uh, he was a he was a strong looking character. He he had um, I think he had just dyed his hair in that picture. With uh, he had just come out of Loving You, the second movie. And um, had a black suit on with a kind of a black velvet shirt. He just was just a striking figure and just was real down to earth with us. In fact, uh, as I as I mentioned in the book, he said, you guys ought to go out to, to Whitehaven and see this place I just bought for my mama. He said, uh, if y'all want to see it, you go out there tomorrow and tell Uncle Vester that Elvis said let y'all up to look at the place. And it was Graceland. And we were some of the first people that got to go up there and we took pictures. There's some photos in the book, actually, of us clowning around on the front steps of Graceland. I recently took my granddaughters down and told them that story. We visited Graceland and it's kind of surreal thinking back on, on that, you know, but he, I think he gravitated toward us because we were a southern band. And, we were from Nashville and just regular old guys, you know, regular country boys. So um, he he also played us advanced copy of Surrender, one of his songs that came out after It's Now or Never, which was a huge record. And Surrender was pretty big, too. He, he played us an advanced copy of that when we were out of his house in California, which would have been about 1960. He was still doing the movies then partying at night and doing the movies early in the morning. <laughs> he had a an intense lifestyle, that's for sure. 
We're talking with singer, songwriter, recording artist Buzz Kaysen. There have been many artists, very renowned artists, who have performed and recorded songs that you wrote. It's a lot of a lot of artists, from U2, Gloria Estefan, The Beatles, Martina McBride, many, even Rudy Valley. Yeah. <laughs> Who was the first artist to record a Buzz Kaysen song? Well, it was actually the band, the Casuals, our, our band. We, uh, Richard Williams and I, he came out of the house and on that old upright piano I mentioned, we wrote My Love Song for You, which was our first single. And Noel Ball, that DJ, put it out on his label. And then he caught Randy Wood in, of Dot Records into putting it out on Dot. So that, that was the first song that I... I wrote professionally, and then the next one would have probably been Tennessee, which was recorded by Jan and Dean. I co-wrote with my future partner, Bobby Russell, and uh, Gary Walker, a song plugger here in town, an entrepreneur, got it recorded by by Jan and Dean, and Snuff Garrett was involved in that, and so was Lou Adler. They, they were producing Jan and Dean at the time, and so we were kind of on our way. We thought, well, gosh, this is easy. First song, Bobby and I write, we get cut and it hits the charts, you know. <laughs> it wasn't, Tennessee wasn't a big hit, but it made some noise. And then the, later on, we wrote another one, and later on, it, it came out by Jan and Dean also called Popsicle. So those are the first little handful of songs that we wrote. Well, what does it feel like when you're driving down the road where you're in a restaurant, wherever, and you hear the unmistakable sounds of a song that you wrote pouring out of the radio. Oh, there's nothing like it, Paul. It never gets old. It's just a thrill, you know, because you come up from nothing and, and you, you achieve something with these songs and it, it just really, really touches your heart to hear them and, and you, the little flashbacks start coming back about the song, about when you wrote it and, and, and all that, or how, and how it got to the artist and that sort of thing. But it's a, it's a thrill to, uh, to hear them. I love to hear them on radio now, especially the ones that I've produced these records of mine, because you want to hear sonically how they're coming across. You know, it's the, the EQ is proper, the, the lows and the highs and the, the voice is up enough and all this sort of stuff. So it's, it never gets old. So just speaking of this recent album of yours, Passion, it seems like you're the kind of person you like the process of getting it perfect, of going back, working in the studio. What is that experience like for you? The experience of making a record. Well, it's family, you know, because I've got a, a set bunch of musicians that I usually use. I experiment around and and try new new faces, uh, but you just start out sitting down playing it uh, on the acoustic guitar, just showing the guys the 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 song, and they're looking at the chart. You know, you write out a little number, number chart, something like that, and um, just build from there. And your relationship with your engineer is uh, is important. I had same engineer for about 20 years, Joe Funderburg, and and now I'm working with my son Parker Kaysen on on several cuts on on that the Passion album, 
and we're co-writing some too, Parker and I are. So um, it's it's just it's just a thrill to to finally hear the uh, the finished product. It's hard to get it down to the finished product anymore because it, you know, you get uh, different opinions and you know different things. But the buck usually starts stops with me. You know, I I make the final decision on what the song is going to sound like. But it's it's a fun process. It really is. Is there a song on your album Passion that you are more, more fond of? Well, song wise, I don't know, but but I like. Will You Love Me has a, an honest rock kind of a feel to it. And there's one called Bread that I like a whole lot. And then I like the title song, of Passion. It's loaded up with, with ones that I really like. But um, I kind of felt like Will You Love Me came off better than than maybe some of them, you know, kind of captured the, the essence of of rock and roll and uh, what we were trying to say on it. We're talking with songwriter Buzz Kaysen. One of your songs, Everlasting Love, everybody knows that song. What do people identify with that song? Well, it it's an uplifting song. When it hits that chorus, it, it, it's got a certain magic to it that becomes kind of like an anthem. Everybody, everybody can sing along to it. It's easy. If, if, if all they sing is everlasting love, that's a, it, it's enough to, uh, to, uh, kind of make an indelible mark on their musical memory. It's, um, it has a, a, a secret to it and it's the way my co-writer Matt Gaden constructed, constructed the melody on the song. It, it lifts up. Rather than just a one-step modulation or half-step, it goes up a fifth, and it, it just opens the air up when it comes to that chorus. And, and it's, an e- it's an easy song to sing, so that's why so many people have recorded it, probably, uh, aside from the fact that, that they, they, they love it, you know. It's almost at, at 10 million airplays. It's, it's 9 million-something. So it's one of the most played songs to, to come out of Nashville. So we're we're proud of that. I was hoping you could also tell us about the song Soldier of Love. It's been performed, recorded by everyone from the Beatles, Pearl Jam. What inspired that one? Well, this this jockey I was telling you about, Noel Ball, came to Tony Moon and I, who Tony was the guitarist in the Casuals at the time and said, if you guys write something for Arthur Alexander, I may record it. Now, Arthur had had You Better Move On, which was a big hit. It was the first significant record to come out of, of Muscle Shoals, out of Fame Studio. Arthur was a tremendous, almost like a country R&B type singer, just a, a tremendous singer and, and, uh, and writer of songs. He And he wound up recording it. And, it didn't really do a whole lot for him. It it um, was a kind of a it was a two sided record. There was another song called "Where Have You Been" on the other side, written by Barry Mann. That was a kind of got a little more airplay than Soldier. But but then the Beatles they liked Arthur's music. They had already recorded Anna, uh, one of his other songs, and they did it on the live at, at the BBC. 
had a radio show that the bands would go in and just record a 30-minute show. In fact, I had the pleasure of doing it in 64 with the Crickets when I was filling in as a lead singer with that band. The uh, Capitol finally got wind of these these tapes going around, of bootleg tapes of those those shows. So they they bought the uh, entire catalog from BBC and put it put it out under an album called Live at the BBC. It sold several million, and uh, that gave us a, a boost on the song. And then Pearl Jam heard it. Well, it was a little band called the Headcoats in Seattle that turned Eddie Vedder on to the song. They recorded it. It was on the Costco uh, Coke. I can't say the name of it, the country relief album, Kosovo, Kosovo relief album. But, and in the meantime, Marshall Crenshaw did a nice version of it. And, and then just a few years back, we did, uh, I produced the, the derailers out of Austin, Texas, and it became the title cut for their album called Soldiers of Love. So it's, it's had a life of its own, this, this little song. It's, it's been recorded, um, I believe next week by, by the great soul, artist and writer Donnie Fritz, who's doing a tribute album to Arthur Alexander. So Arthur's is really about my favorite version of it. The Arthur Alexander? Yes. Wow. Yeah. The intersections you've had, as we've mentioned, in your life, it's really just an incredible story. And one of the people who you crossed paths with was Jimmy Buffett, who is a force of his own. <laughs> yes. Tell us about the first time you set eyes on a young Jimmy Buffett. Well, Travis Turk and I were doing sound-alike records. In those days, you, you did a, a guy named Bill Beasley had a, a company called Hit Records, and he would put put back-to-back hit songs on, on a, a 45 RPM record and had salesmen all over the country selling these things to, to convenience stores because there was a lot of areas where you couldn't find records. You know, you didn't have the mail order, you didn't have the internet, all that then. And they sold a lot of those things. And we, we were in a little studio and we would, would experiment around at night cutting our own stuff. And he got wind from Milton Brown in Mobile that uh, Jimmy might want to try to come up and do something. So I said, well, send him up. So he sent a tape, and I kind of liked it. He didn't really have any hits, per se, but he had he had uh, some good folk rock things. And, uh, I mean, I immediately liked him when he came up. He just had a great personality and just a, uh, had a drive about him. He was, uh, you could tell he, he wasn't going to give up. He was going to make it one way or the other, you know, although he was a square pig and a round hole here in Nashville because he didn't quite fit the mold of, of regular Nashville music, although I've always said he has a, has a good country voice, you know, and he's proven to, to be able to go country too <laughs> over the years. So uh, we went in and cut some demos and and uh, Mike Shepard of Barnaby Records put them out for us. We didn't really, we wanted to redo them and do them better in a, in a better studio or whatever, but um, he wanted to put them out like they were, and it didn't sell much, but it, it got it got him on his way. And the album was called Down to Earth, and then later on we cut a second album when I had built, uh, Travis and I had built a studio called Creative Workshop, which we still own. 
we cut High Cumberland Jubilee, that Barnaby Records did not release the second album. It came out later on a package called Before the Beach. But, uh, yeah, I liked Jimmy right from the beginning. We're still friends. You wrote some songs with him, and there was one co-write on Down to Earth and several on High Cumberland Jubilee. They're really interesting songs. They're everything from kind of pensive to kind of funny, like God Don't Own a Car. I was just playing yeah. that earlier. <laughs> yeah. What is Jimmy Buffett like to write songs with? Oh, well, he, he's sharp, you know. He, he's he's a, a good writer, real, um, you know, give and take kind of guy, you know. No 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 stress writing with him. And uh, we, we had a lot of fun doing that, for sure. No matter if it's another artist... If you're performing live or on this recent album of yours, Passion, when somebody listens to your music, what is your goal? What do you hope that they get from that experience? Well, I just hope that they're they're entertained and uh, moved and, and get some some meaning out of the song if it's if it's got a serious touch to it, but just that it makes them feel good, you know, or, or strike some emotion. And then, you know, you, you kind of just put them down and let it, let it happen, you know. <laughs> However, it hits some songs hit one person one way and, and uh, another person the other way. What is the best thing about being Buzz Kaysen? Oh, gosh. Well, I sometimes wonder about that. I, I question myself, who am I? What am I doing here? It's family. Uh, the, the family I have and, and, and knowing, knowing the Lord and, uh, trying to serve Him, uh, giving back to the, uh, the, the joy of giving. We have a foundation called Gifts, Giving and Faith Together that we have certain people out, not necessarily all musicians, but a lot of music people that are, that are on the skids that need help. We do a monthly meeting called First Tuesday here in the studio and have guest speakers and we do a, a tournament. We're involved with the Ray Stevens Classic golf tournament every year. It'll be in October this year as, as a fundraiser. So um, I would say just trying to give back is, is the best part of of me because there's a lot of stuff that's not that not, it's not good. <laughs> there have been a lot of labels that have been applied to you. I did that at the at the top of the interview. Singer, songwriter, recording artist, producer, author, publisher. What about at heart? Who is Buzz Kaysen? Well, I'm just a guy that came up uh, from nothing and uh, just loves people. You know, I, I tell my son and the, all my children, I said, you, you've got to, you've got to love people. You've got to treat them right. Just try to be, well, you've got to be honest in everything you do in, in your life. I'm just trying to, to make those around me happy. That's, that's what I'm, that's, that's my goal. Anyone who wants more information on Buzz Kaysen, it's, buzzcason.com C-A-S-O-N I want to thank you for joining us. It's been great to talk to you. 
Yeah, Paul, I, I appreciate it. It's been a been a fun visit. Well, let's do it again. <laughs> we will. We will. I'll tell you a little short little short story. You may not remember this, but we spoke on the phone and it was probably it was probably like ten years ago. My wife was listening to Everlasting Love. And I was telling her, I said, you know, one time I spoke briefly with a guy who co-wrote that song. And she looked at me and she said, and you haven't interviewed him yet? I'm mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I owe your wife a, a favor there. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. We owe you a favor. Thank you very much. And I've enjoyed the record. I've enjoyed your book. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Paul. God bless you. God bless you. Appreciate it. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop, ba-doo, bop, zee, bock, a doodly, not bock, suki, chacha, kook, a boz, a look, a boz, a neck, a pork, a kid, a goat, a rump, a doodly, zan, but over that, a party, yeah, yeah, a zika, bock, a book, a long, gone, doodly, goodie, boo, goodbye.